guys can be seated this morning. Like I said, it's good to be back. It was great to spend some time with um, some guys just thinking about the doctrine of God, thinking about who He is, and um, being challenged. And it was a, it was a great time, but it's, it's good to be back and, and with our whole church. Um, it's, a, it's a blessing. So if you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20 this morning. 12 through 20. So last week we, we sort of dove in and we talked about Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. And we sort of really went all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, the, the, the third verse of the Bible where it says, in the beginning God said, let there be light. And we talked about the significance of that, that God through Christ is not only the source of divine revelation, but he's also this one that was promised in the Old Testament, this Messiah that would bring salvation to not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so Jesus said that statement, and the whole rest of the chapter is about the implications of that and how the religious leaders of the day respond to Jesus' claim about himself. He said, I am the light of the world. And the rest of the chapter is this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. And whatever we saw in John chapter 7, right, the people are conspiring to kill Christ. The religious leaders are seeking to arrest him. They're accusing him of having a demon. They try to put him in chains and, and, uh, and arrest him right in that moment. Whatever we saw in John chapter 7 is... <laughs> is a microcosm of what we will see in John chapter 8. That whatever was beginning in John chapter 7 is coming to a boiling point in John chapter 8. That by the end of John chapter 8, verse 59, the people, not just the religious leaders, but the people are picking up stones to stone him. That is Jesus. That because of what he said, this claim to be the light of the world, this claim to be very God of very God, to be the second person of the triune God, one with the Father, light of light, truth itself, the highest authority, Jesus claims this, and by the end of the chapter, the people are willing to stone him. And so we'll see in our passage this morning the beginning implications of this, the beginning statements that come and will begin to boil as we go through John chapter 8. And we'll see this morning the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, they're going to try to put the Lord of glory on trial. They're going to try to bring him into their own court. They're going to try to try him on charges that he is not a reliable witness, that he needs other witnesses. And they're going to basically question his statement, I am the light of the world, and reject his statement, I am the light of the world. And, they, and they're going to try to use Old Testament law, they're going to try to use the word of God to, to, to reject the word of God incarnate. They're going to try to use the word of God against the word of God, which not, is not very wise. But ultimately what we'll see as we go through this passage this morning is that actually it is them that are at, that are at odds with the law. It is not the Lord of glory, it is not Christ who is at odds with the law, it is them that it is truth and justice itself that they have set themselves up against. That Christ is truth itself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that even through this conflict, even through this, um, this question of our Lord, this interrogation, 
Jesus proclaims who he is. That he is not only the light of the world, but they are to know him and accept his testimony. And for us today, that's our only hope, is to know Christ and to accept his testimony about who he is, not only as son of man, but son of God. So I'll read our passage this morning if you want to follow along with me. Um, I'll pray for us and then we'll study God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? But Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, infallible, and errant word, that we have a sure hope this morning. A more sure word than any word besides this. Lord, we have a sure word this morning that we have your special revelation that you have given to us, your people, that we might not only know you, know who you are, God, infinite, eternal, unchanging, but that we might know the plan of salvation that you have set forward in the person and work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come this morning and we hear the words of our Savior and we see the response to his words, Lord, I pray this morning that we would not be like those that do not know the Son or do those that do not know the Father. But I pray this morning that by the power of your Spirit, you would illumine the eyes of your people, the hearts of your people, that the light of Christ might shine on us, on our very souls, that we might see and believe, not just know of God, but know God. And this morning, we ask for your help. We know that we cannot do this on our own strength. So we ask for your help this morning in our weakness and our frailty, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up, and that you would use the truth of your word to, to build us up and help us to trust and rely in Christ this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we come to this passage, and, and we spent a lot of time last week on, on verse 12, so I won't go through everything that we went through last time. We spent a long time on John chapter 12, but Jesus begins this whole pericope, this whole, st this whole um, paragraph here, with this statement, I am the light of the world. And we talked a lot about what that meant, not just that Jesus is, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know why I pictured this, but in our day, you know, I think Elon Musk and like this giant solar-powered light, and I don't know why, he doesn't even have a solar power. 
entire life. But, you know, you think of something like that. He says, I am the light of the world. That's not what Jesus is saying there. He's not just talking about illumination in a general sense. He's using scriptural language, Old Testament language, to talk about himself as the light, the one who brings light and salvation to God's people. He is the one promised in the Old Testament. He is the son of righteousness, as Michael will say, the very glory and presence of God dwelling amongst his people. He is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And that this life has an effect on God's people. Because he says, those who follow me, the follow the light, will not walk in darkness. That there's an effect this is, that this light has on the people of God. They will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. This is great news. This is glorious news. This is mercy. This is grace. And yet, what is the response of the religious leaders of the day? It is to question the light and to reject the light. We even touched on that last week. That, that is natural man's response to the light. John 3 says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. And this is what we see in our passage this morning. The Pharisees question the light and ultimately reject the light. And the tactics that they use to do this are interesting. If you look with me at verse 13, the Pharisees say this. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What are they saying there? They're sort of using this logic, if you will, this kind of three, this three-tiered logic. They're saying, Jesus, you are bearing witness about yourself. It takes two witnesses to validate any claim, right? You can't just say something's true. You have to have witnesses to validate that claim. Therefore, we can't trust your testimony. It's not true. It's not valid. That's what they say. Your testimony is not true. Because there's no other witnesses. It's only you, Jesus, saying you're the light of the world. No one else is saying that. No one else is bearing witness to that. Therefore, we don't have to believe what you're saying. You're not to be trusted. But they're also doing something else. They're also doing something else. They're not only using the Old Testament law about two or more witnesses to discredit his claim. They are actually trying to use Christ's own words against him. They're trying to use Jesus' own words against him. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 31. John chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says something very interesting here. He's he had just healed a man on the Sabbath, a man that was lame for 38 years. He healed him instantly. And then he essentially claims equality with God. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. They, they are ready to kill him because he has not only broken the Sabbath, but he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they're asking him for this witness, like, prove yourself. Prove that you really are this. And Jesus says this in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What did the Pharisees say? You are bearing witness about yourself, therefore your testimony is not true. It sounds like they're saying, you are bearing witness about yourself. They, they think they have trapped Jesus. They think they've cornered him. They, they're using his own words against him. They're basically saying this, according to your, your own standard, Jesus, we don't have to believe you. You said, if I bear witness about myself, it's not true. You just said, you said something and didn't have a witness. Therefore, we don't have to believe you. 
We can reject this claim about you being the light of the world. You're being inconsistent by your own admission. And so we should feel the tension of that a little bit, right? If we're not honest about the scriptures, that can feel like a contradiction. It can feel like Jesus is being inconsistent in a way. He says one thing, then a couple chapters later, he says something different. What's going on? Is Jesus being consistent? Well, the answer is no, right? He's the Lord of glory. He's not being inconsistent. And why is that so? Well, in John chapter 5, Jesus gives three witnesses of his testimony, three external witnesses. He gives them John the Baptist. He gives them the works that he's done, the miracles that he did. And he gives them the scriptures as a testimony, as a witness to him being equal with the Father, the Lord of glory. Three witnesses, John the Baptist, the works that he's doing, and the scriptures. So he wasn't bearing witness by himself. He had witnesses. But did the, did the Pharisees hear those? Did they listen? Did they say, oh, you're right. You do have three witnesses. We're going to believe you now. No. In fact, they refused. They closed their eyes. They closed their ears to his witnesses. They don't want to hear what John the Baptist has to say. They don't want to believe the miracles that Jesus did. They don't want to believe the scriptures that testify to him being the Messiah. And so what we see here is something very interesting. They've rejected Jesus' external sort of earthly claims about himself, his, his witnesses, rather. They've rejected his witnesses. They've rejected John the Baptist. They've rejected his miracles. They've rejected the scripture. So what does Jesus do in verse 14? He takes it to another level. He takes it to another level. He, he, he does something amazing here. If you look with me at verse 14, he says this, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. He's saying, actually, actually, I can bear witness about myself because I am God. <laughs> I am God. I am the Lord of glory. And this is what we call the self-attesting, self-authenticating nature of God, that as Van Til will say, in any system of thought, the ultimate authority justifies itself. The ultimate authority justifies itself. The, the writer to the Hebrews will say it like this, because God had no one greater by which to swear, who did he swear by? Some God that made him? No, he swore by himself. He swore by himself that there is no higher authority for Jesus to appeal to. Why? Because he is the highest authority. He is God incarnate. He is appealing to himself as the final authority, the final witness. And the only reason he can do that is because he is God. He is divine. And that's what he says. He says, because I know where I came from and where I am going. He's not just saying, like, I'm a competent person, you know, I have my life figured out, you know, I know where I came from, I know where I went to college, and I, and I know where I'm going to have my career. He's not saying that. He's saying, I have come from heaven, and I am going back to heaven. I am the final authority. I know my origin, and I know my destination. I am God. That there's no higher authority to appeal to. Um, the, the early church father, Christostom, says this. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am not only from God, I am God and the Son of God. 
And God is surely, listen to this, God is surely a competent witness of himself. <laughs> I love that statement. God is surely a competent witness to himself. Surely God can say who he is and what is right and what is true. So what Jesus is doing here is saying, you are, you're seeing me purely as a man. You're seeing me according to the flesh. That's what I'll say in the next verse. But you're not seeing my divine nature. I am that I am. I am God. And so what Jesus is really saying here is, I have other witnesses. I have other witnesses. I have John the Baptist. I have my miracles. I have the scriptures. What do the kids say these days? I have receipts, right? <laughs> I have receipts. I have witnesses. But even if I didn't, even if I didn't, my word is enough. It is final because I am the final authority. I am God. And so even though Jesus is saying this, he, sh he shows us that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they lacked this knowledge. And that the real reason that they are still questioning, the real reason that they are still doubting is they, because they do not know him. They do not know Christ. They don't know where he has come from. They don't know his divine nature, that the one standing before him is truly and very God. And so we see in verse 15 that Jesus presses in more. He's not just going to leave it there. He presses in more. He says, you judge according to the flesh. You judge according to the flesh. You judge by appearances. And that's exactly what they had done to him. They, they'd seen his flesh, right? He was walking around. Jesus had a real body. He wasn't just a floating, you know, hologram. He was really and very man. And so they're judging him according to that. They see a man standing in front of him. Surely he's just a man like me. But they have judged by appearances and not with right judgment. And then we see a very interesting passage right after um, verse 15. It says, I judge no one. I judge no one. And this is a, a very interesting verse. This is often misused to say, well, see, Jesus didn't judge anyone. He never said anything judgmental, right? But he, he kind of did right in this passage, and he kind of does in other places like Matthew 24, where he pronounces woes on the Pharisees. So Jesus did judge. Jesus did make judgments. But why is he saying, I judge no one? Some people supply the words, according to the flesh after that. Like he's making a parallel statement. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one according to the flesh. That's one way to understand it. I think that's accurate. But I think there's even something more we can say that the purpose of Christ's first coming was not to judge, but was to save, right? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That the purpose of Christ's first coming in his incarnation was not to execute final judgment, but it was to come and he'll ultimately say, I will judge again, fully and finally. You see in the book of Revelation, if you want a gnarly passage to look at, look at Revelation 19. We see Christ coming in judgment with a sword coming out of his mouth. So, um... There's, there's much more that can be said there. but So Jesus is saying, you've judged according to the flesh. I didn't come this time to judge fully and finally, but even if I did, my judgment is true. My judgment is true. 
And it's very interesting, if we look at verses 14 and 16, if we look at them sort of parallel, Jesus is using the same sort of argument here. What did he say in verse 14? Even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And what's he say in verse 16? Even if I judge, my judgment is true. He's again appealing to his authority, his self-authenticating nature that he is God. So he's appealing to his divine nature, but he's also appealing to something else. Because what's it say at the end of verse 16? If you look there with me. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. He gives a reason. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. I and the Father who sent me. That he's appealing not only to being God, not only to his divine nature, but he is appealing to the triune nature of God. That not only is he God, not only is he the word made flesh, but he is the second person of the triune God. He is the son of God. And the father bears witness to the son. What do we learn back all the way in John chapter 1 verse 1? What's it say? In the beginning was the Word. In the very beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That there's a witness of this Word with God, meaning there's an equality, there's a divine nature that is shared. But there is also a distinction between the Word and the Father, the Son and the Father. And so this is what he is basing his claim on. This is why he can judge. This is why he's not a false witness. This is why the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, <laughs> the Pharisees, gosh, the Pharisees should believe what he's saying. Why? Just to kind of summarize what we're going through. Because this is kind of, kind of weird language. We don't always hear Jesus talk like this. It's very almost technical. And so how can we summarize what he's saying? This is what I think is helpful. This is what Jesus, this is what he's basing his claim on. I think this is kind of what he's trying to say to the Pharisees. You think I'm just a man. You think I'm just a man. You've judged me according to the flesh alone. You've even rejected my earthly external witnesses. You've rejected my claims. You've rejected my witnesses. But what you failed to see and what you failed to know is that I am. That I am. Full stop. I am. I am God. I am one with the Father. As the great creeds of the church say, I am of one substance with the Father, very and eternal God. And when I witness to myself and the Father witnesses with me, it is the truth telling you this is truth. And so if you reject truth itself, you've rejected truth in total. And this, what I'm saying to you, that my witness is true, that my judgment is true, that I am the light of the world, not only should it be believed, but it must be believed and accepted. It must be believed and accepted because I and the Father are one. And Jesus goes on in verse 19, or 17 through 19, we see, we see the response to this. That they, the Pharisees don't like this. They don't accept this word. They don't accept his witnesses. They don't accept the Father's witness. They accept none of it. And we see that the people remain blind. They're veiled. They're veiled to the self 
authenticating glory of Christ that are veiled to the triune nature of God. They're unable to see. They're only focused on the flesh, what is earthly, what is external. And so they say to him, where is your father? Oh, you have a father. You have another witness. Where is your father? It's almost as if they're saying, oh, you have a witness. If you have a witness, bring him here. Bring him in. We want to, we want to put the father on trial too. We want to, we want to bring him forward. What arrogance, what, what pride that they would not only put Christ on the trial seat, but they would, they would do the same to the Father. And Jesus here goes straight to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to the heart of what is really going on. He says in, at the end of verse 19, You know neither me nor my Father. You know neither me nor my Father. In other words, he's saying, you don't know God. You think you know God. You think you know the Father. You think you know who God is. You've memorized most of the Old Testament. You think you have this understanding of who God is and who Yahweh is. But he's saying you do not know God. You think you do, but you don't. And this sort of echoes what we see in places like Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus will be speaking to people, and they say, many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these signs in your name? Did we not cast out demons and prophesy in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. That there's this knowing that there are people, religious leaders, there are many people, even very religious people, that do not know the Lord. They do not know God. That's what Jesus is telling these people. You do not know me. You do not know me and you do not know the Father. That is, that is forward, to put it lightly. He is getting to the heart of what is really going on. He is pressing against them the truth that they, do, they think they know God and they do not. And then he says this amazing phrase. He said, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. What does Jesus say on later in the Gospel? He says, I and the Father are one. Nobody can say, I'll take the Father, I'll take the Father, but the Son, you know, no, no thanks. I like the God of the Old Testament, but not, not Jesus. Maybe you can think of people that would say that. Or the inverse, you know, I like Jesus, I like the God of the New Testament, I like Jesus, but the Father, you know, he was, they kind of identify with the Old Testament, that's not, I don't worship that God, no, not that Father. And Jesus is connecting the Father and the Son in this inseparable way of the same essence. He says, if you knew me, you would know the Father as well. That there's this inseparable Substance that the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit share. This is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons. And that's what Jesus is telling them, that if you knew me, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And we see ultimately, as the story goes on, that he's not arrested, that his hour has not yet come. God providentially preserves him, that he's not arrested yet because he knows the time and the place and nothing is outside of his control, ultimately. And so, and we see the end of the account there. 
So what do we what do we what do we draw from this? What's the big issue? What's the big thing that we take away from this passage? Because there's a lot of kind of technical language, technical words. What is Jesus is making kind of compound arguments there? What how do how do we take something away from this? The big issue in this passage, and the word comes up several times, is that these people do not know God. They do not know God. He says, you neither know where I come from or where I'm going. You neither know me nor the Father. That they not only don't know Christ, where he's come from or where he's going, but they do not, by implication, know the Father. And so the, 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 the weight that we should feel this morning is that we need to know God rightly. These people thought they knew the Lord. They thought they knew God, but they did not. And so what Jesus is telling them is that there is a type of knowing of God, maybe that God exists, that God is real, that God is creator, but that is something that even the demons believe, right, and tremble. And there is this knowledge of God, there's this knowledge of his son that is a right knowledge that leads to believing. Why did John write his gospel? I wrote these things so that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. He's not just saying, know these facts, know these things happen, or even just memorize them. He's saying that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as we see in this passage, not only does knowing God, knowing God just doesn't stop there. Knowing God has implications, it has effects on us. What does he say in John chapter 8, verse 12? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That this knowledge of who Jesus is as the light of the world has an effect on people. It doesn't just keep them in darkness. It produces something in them, namely walking in the light and having the light of life. How does the psalmist say it? Be still and know that I am God. That there's this element in which this is eternal life. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 17. He's praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life. What is it? That they know me, my people, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. That there's a sense in which we should not only know that God is real, know that God exists, but know God as the true God, the only true and living God in Christ whom we sent. And that has an effect on us as believers, that we no longer walk in darkness. We no longer want to go to the light. We no longer love the light rather than the darkness. I'm sorry, slip, reverse that. We no longer love the darkness but we love the light and that this has an effect on God's people, not only in terms of our worship of God, but our obedience toward him. What do I mean? There's a, there's a, a saying that right doctrine leads to right worship. That when we know God rightly, when we understand who he is, that he's infinite, eternal, unchanging, that he is creator, sustainer of us, but also that he has sent his son into the world, that he is put him on a cross to die for our sins, that he is, we are justified by faith in him alone, that that has an effect on us as people. That it does not cause us to continue to walk in darkness, but rather to walk in the light as he is in the light. That this is what we can say that doctrine leads to 
devotion. It leads to right practice, right worship of God, that we can't separate, as some people do, spirit and truth. Where we can say, well, we have some spirit over here, we have some truth over here. No. To worship God is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You cannot have one without the other. And if you look at our, um, our liturgy this morning, what does it say at the, long, the end of that big long paragraph talking about of God and the Holy Trinity? It says this doctrine of the Trinity is what? A really good intellectual exercise? A really difficult thing to think about? Yeah. But what's it say? It is the foundation of all of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. What did we, what, what, what are we saying this morning? What are we saying this morning? We sang, be thou my vision. We sang, solid rock. What does it say um, in the second verse of solid rock? It says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. What is that saying? What's the comfort of that line? It's saying, even when there's darkness, even when... I cannot see the presence of the Lord. Even when I feel the weight of my sin, even when I feel the world around me caving in, what is the songwriter's hope? Is it that, is it how good he is? Is it what he, does he look back and say, even when darkness fails, his lovely face, I rest in my righteousness. He says, I rest in his unchanging grace. That this songwriter's hope is not in himself, it's not in his ability, it is in the unchanging grace of God. Unchanging is an attribute of God. He is the unchanging one. He does not have, as we'll sing in a minute, there is no shadow of turning in him. There's no changing in our God that we can have hope and confidence in the God who is the I Am. And so the psalmist does this as well, not just modern songwriters, but the psalmist says this. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him again. He's looking to who God is, and it's causing him to not think about his earthly situation, not, not stay on his downcast soul, but he says, hope in God. He's turning in his eyes towards heaven, toward the God and creator of the world. And so... All that to say, this morning as we walk away and as we try to think about why this passage is important, to know God, to know the Son of God, to know Christ, is to be changed by Him. It is to have an effect on us, and that our hope this morning is in nothing less than the unchanging God of the universe that not only created us and sustains us, but in the fullness of time sent forth His Son. So this morning, may we know him. May we not know a figment of our imagination. May we not know an idol that we've created in our own head. But may we know the true and living God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ, that in the fullness of time, you've sent forth your son. That we did not deserve your mercy or your grace, but you've poured it out in the person and work of Christ. And this morning, may we not be like those um, who trust in our own works, in our own righteousness. May we not be those that question the Lord of glory.
But may we come this morning looking to Christ, looking to the one who has done it all, that not only came in, um, in the flesh, but who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and as we read this morning, ever lives to make intercession for his people, that we have an eternal redemption, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the perfect and spotless Lamb. And so as we come this morning, may we rest in Christ, may we rest in his unchanging grace, and may we look to the one who was risen and resurrected for us and for our salvation. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.